Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Mallory Palish, Chancellor of Reach University. And we're going to be taking a close look at the innovative apprenticeship route they have to becoming a teacher in the U.S. We're looking at teacher workforce, teacher shortages in the U.S., and how they are addressing this by attracting individuals into the teacher workforce and focusing on underserved communities and looking at some of the, um, the hurdles that individuals traditionally face when trying to become teachers whether that's childcare or cost or flexibility. Uh, how is it that we can increase completion rates? And uh, Mallory's going to give us some insight on the work they're doing across four different states in the U.S. and the journey that they've been on and where they are going. So without further ado, Mallory, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Well, it's so good to see you. You're out there in Tennessee, in the East Coast, in the U.S. I'm here in the U.K. We have a little bit of a time difference, although nothing too drastic. And you are the Chancellor of Reach University. And I'd love to start by finding out a little bit more about that. What's, what's Reach University all about? So REACH University is about, uh, well, it used to just be one thing, and now it's more of two things. So what it used to be only about, and is still about today, is ending teacher shortages through apprenticeship degrees. REACH University offers programs and pathways that allow schools to turn their frontline positions as classroom aides, as paraprofessionals, into apprenticeships that confer college credit and culminate in those individuals receiving the training and the degree and credentials they need to become high quality accredited teachers for their schools to fill the vacancies in their community. And that's what REACH has always been about. Uh, we have also recognized that these apprenticeship pathways could be similarly powerful in ending nursing shortages, in ending clean tech manufacturing shortages. And so REACH is also starting to expand its focus, not on providing those degrees itself, but in collaborating with other universities and employers to replicate apprenticeship degrees in, in other industries across the country. Excellent. Excellent. What's the state of affairs right now in the U.S.? If you're characterizing things about teacher shortages, for instance, what, what are, what's the world look like? Bad and getting worse, uh, unfortunately. And so, uh, you know, before the pandemic, in around 2017, 2018, there were 100,000 teacher vacancies in the United States with a full-time teacher workforce of around 4 million people. Today, that number stands closer to around 300,000 vacancies. And those are not equally distributed. They are overwhelmingly clustered in our lowest income rural and urban communities, equally split more or less between those two rural and urban. And what we're seeing is that that's one tier, just the sheer number of bodies. But then when you layer on top of that, the demographic match, which we know is an important indicator of a teacher's success for students is whether or not those students have at least one teacher who shares their lived experience. Uh, the gap is even wider. So in the United States, 51% of our students currently receive uh, free and reduced lunch in our public schools um, as a signal of poverty. We are plurality non-white. And despite that, 80% of our teacher workforce is uh, white middle income women. And beyond that, uh, we take a look at other indicators of quality of 
where these people, uh, how they performed on their standardized assessments, their value add measures, and we're seeing that there's actually been a decline in the quality of teachers as well over the years. Now, I think it could be very easy to open up a conversation about causality there, but suffice it to say on all of the indicators that do look at who becomes a teacher and what is their quality and impact on students over time, the United States has been headed in the wrong direction. And one of the many reasons why that is the case is because we have made it so expensive and so hard to become a teacher relative to the compensation and benefits that a person will receive once they do become a teacher. And Reach University is working to change that. Well, it's a very stark picture uh, that you're painting there. In terms of addressing the issue and and getting more people, uh, diverse people, uh, to come on and become teachers, how can how can they do that? What are the um, the things that Reach University can do to attract individuals to let them know that the journey doesn't need to be prohibitively expensive relative to what they're expecting their 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 returns uh, to be? People get into teaching for lo- for the love of it, but obviously the financials are not inconsequential. Uh, so give us a little bit of perhaps maybe a snapshot of of someone who's going through uh, your system and, and perhaps also highlighting how that's different from, say, a traditional university that most people would be familiar with. Absolutely. So so first, um, of who's in our program, and then second, we have five pillars of an apprenticeship degree that we think are what make our candidates successful in this program that wouldn't necessarily exist in a traditional college pathway. Uh, so first, let's talk about who those candidates are. Our average candidate is a parent in their late 30s. They are working full-time in a school, usually with some college, but no degree, usually making around minimum wage. Uh, And these are individuals who have, are oftentimes working in a school that they themselves attended as a child. So these are people with deep roots to their community. Um, They are in our program, most likely to be a person of color, most likely to be earning minimum wage, and most likely to be uh, a parent to one or more children. Those individuals in the traditional college system have abysmally low college completion rates. Uh, It is usually, so for a white student from a middle or high socioeconomic status background, on-time college persistence is around 70%. For people with some combination of those variables I just described, it can go as low as single digits on time completion rates. Uh, And our program, we are really proud to report that in our program, uh, our students actually outperform and are more likely to graduate from Reach University on time than that 70% indicator for students from traditional, quote unquote, traditional backgrounds going to traditional college programs. And so that is, you know, that is what's something that we are really excited about. And then the question is, how did we get there, right? How do we take students who are so poorly served in traditional programs and get outcomes, help them get outcomes for themselves that exceed what is happening for um, the, the high waterline in traditional higher education? And that comes to our five pillars. Um, so very briefly, what those are, are efficiency, flexibility, relevance, affordability, and professional capital. To describe Excellent. really briefly what all of those are. Um, so the forgive me, cut off my monologue at any given point here. Um, but the, the idea here, so starting with efficiency, 
50%, let's, let's say we have a student named Mary. First of all, Mary is a mom to two kids working in a school as a classroom aide. 50% of her credit hours now count as the job she's going and doing every day. So she's already halfway to her college degree by virtue of going in and working with children in this setting every day. The second one is flexibility. These remaining 50% of credit she's getting come from classes where we have three criteria. She doesn't ever have to miss her job. Second is she does not have to arrange childcare. And the third is she doesn't need private transportation. For us, that means Zoom classes on nights and weekends so that Mary is never choosing between life and her degree. The third thing is relevance. When she's in those Zoom classes, she's being taught by someone who themselves has been a classroom teacher. And in fact, about a quarter of our educators have been either state teacher or principal of the year uh, in their respective areas. So she's being taught by an incredibly talented educator with direct experience who can connect the academic theory to the things that Mary is gonna have to go do in the job the next day. Uh, the fourth piece is affordability. So Mary is continuing to get paid by her school district. And then we are able to braid together uh, federal financial aid, federal apprenticeship dollars, state grants, as well as when it's necessary, private philanthropy, so that the net result for Mary is she never pays more than $75 a month out of pocket, uh, while at the same time earning her full salary. Uh, in many cases, she actually pays nothing at all. And so in any case, the bottom line is that Mary is not only not taking on student loan debt, she's actually getting paid to earn her college degree. And then the fifth and final piece is professional capital. And this is really briefly to describe one of the challenges that's led to teacher shortages, again, of many, um, is the fact that I could go earn a college degree in, uh, in English and to become an English teacher, go back to my hometown and find out that my school district has a teacher shortage, but not in English teachers. They need middle school special education. They need high school science, but they do not need an English teacher. And now I've gone through all that trouble and there's no job waiting for me. One of the, the final piece of our apprenticeship degrees is that we actually see ourselves as a B2B institution. So we work directly with the school district first. So before Mary even enters our program, we work with the school district to say, what positions do you need filled? Who are the people like Mary already working in your building who could be great teachers in those roles? And so by the time Mary enters our program, she knows that once she graduates, there's a job waiting for her in the building where she's already working and in the community where she's already living. So that's my not so concise way of summarizing who are our candidates and, and what makes this special for them. I love it. I love it. And on, on, there are many facets to this. It sounds extremely well thought through. And yet also it sounds like it's a simple thing. Like why not earlier? Why not more? Um, and a question actually that, that, that comes to mind is also whether, uh, yes, you're doing, uh, underserved communities, but are you finding people who are joining you who are actually not necessarily in those underserved communities, but they might just like what you do, who you are and how you operate? Yes, yes. Uh, and in fact, there's this quotation that I love uh, from a politician in Colombia that says something to the effect of, an advanced society is not one in which the poor have cars. It is one in which the rich take public transportation. And, you know, when I take a look at this idea is not a new one. We have not invented this. We have stolen it shamelessly from Europe. And when you take a look at programs like Germany's Berufs Academy in particular, you'll see that a lot of large corporations offer their own version of the apprenticeship degree pathway where it's the most sought after pathway to get into because it will get you the best outcomes. If we do this right, it becomes a vehicle for equity and for change 
not because it is only being used by people who don't have other options, but because of the fact that people who could go to traditional programs, who could afford them, who could do well in them are saying, well, this is just a better program. It's better quality. It's getting me better job outcomes. It's It makes more sense financially. And so that is very much the goal. While REACH is focused on supporting individuals who can't access a traditional college program because might primarily of these financial indicators, our goal is to make apprenticeship degrees prolific enough in other industries as well, that it becomes a mainstream option that is seen as equal to and perhaps even superior to the traditional college pathway. Excellent. And I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I remember when we were talking before, in the autumn, in the fall, you're looking to uh, launch an initiative that will sort of help you share your your insight, your wisdom, your experience uh, with a broader audience and, and hopefully creating a little bit of scale. That's right. So right now, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports around 11 million skilled vacancies in the United States. This number is actually low for two reasons. One is it's only reporting what employers are reporting. So it's not reporting latent or tacit uh, skilled roles that just don't even exist. Uh, and it doesn't account for the fact that our economy is only going to become more knowledge-based over time. And so to say that we have 11 million skilled vacancies in the United States right now is really the most conservative estimate. There are also about 40 million people in the United States who have some college and no degree, signaling that they had an interest in getting the skills and the training to allow them to access a high wage skilled profession and it didn't work for them. I suspect often for the same reasons that we just described in Mary's scenario. And so our goal is to collaborate with other institutions, two-year and four-year institutions across the United States that share our conviction, that are already focusing on workforce, that are serious about providing these quality training pathways um, to create a consortium of institutions that collectively end skilled vacancies in the United States by 2035. I'm curious to understand how it all started, not, not the idea necessarily, but actually that journey uh, in terms of creating awareness, uh, putting together the proposition, getting the financials in place, increase, you know, generating demand, educating people who maybe aren't that familiar with the concept. Uh, love to understand it. Uh, it has been a long journey, to be sure. Uh, without dating myself too much, it began for me about 15 years ago. I was a doctoral researcher. Uh, my PhD was doing labor market modeling around rural teacher shortages. And even from an economics perspective, right, even devoid of business, just looking at it from a macro labor market perspective, the cost spent on teacher shortages, even just the direct tangible costs, not the costs to our economy of having an undereducated workforce. But we were spending as a nation before the pandemic about $20,000 per teacher vacancy per year in headhunting fees. That came to, again, pre-pandemic when we only had 100,000 vacancies, over $2 billion every year in federal funding that was being used just to try to find people to come do the work. And annually, not one-time fees. And so from a macroeconomic perspective, I began with this belief of there has to be a way to capture value that is cost neutral, that, that makes sense and that works. Um, with that much waste in our economy, there has to be a way to capture that dead weight loss and to transform it into a sustainable business model for this type of pathway. 
it's taken, you know, the better part of 15 years to figure out tangibly what is that. But I'm really proud of where we landed, which is that Reach University, because we are not um, paying for an expensive physical footprint, because we are not uh, subsidizing uh, other student amenities and we're not paying for the football field, Reach University's marginal costs are really low. We're only about $4,000 per student per year in marginal cost. And so by braiding together the $75 plus any Pell funding that a student receives, plus uh, state apprenticeship funds, federal apprenticeship funds, we're able to generate well above that in marginal revenue. So as an institution, we're actually self-sustaining at this point entirely on earned income. Our fundraising now is focusing on building out the technical assistance to support other institutions, the consultation and collaboration and convenings, and that ecosystem work that will support others creating similar programs. But what's really exciting about this is a program that is not compromising on quality, that is not a degree mill, that is getting phenomenal results in terms of its students' performance. You know, our students pass their teacher certification exams at rates two to three times the average for their peer cohort groups. We are seeing them persist through this program at 97% semester over semester retention. We're, so we're not cream skimming and we're getting phenomenal results. And we're doing that with unit economics that are fundamentally scalable. And you're not constrained in terms of your growth potential, right? I mean, the way you're describing the model, you can scale up with relative ease and and without putting an incredible amount of burden, right? You can just mobilize rather, rather quickly. That's right. Now, we are being thoughtful. I think we're in the opposite position of many organizations where the goal is grow as fast as you can. Um, we're being very careful right now to not grow as fast as we can. And in fact, we might be one of the only institutions I know that actually has some limits on we do not want to grow faster than X. Uh, and the reason for that is that Fast growth, even when it's easy, even when there's positive unit, eco unit economics, and even when there's relatively low barriers to scale, fast growth strains an institution, and it tends to come into competition with quality. And in our mind, our goal is not to be the biggest institution out there. Our goal is for teacher shortages to be eliminated. And so when we take a look at that, and, and by the way, not just to be eliminated, but to be eliminated and filled with high quality educators who reflect the communities they serve. And so when we take a look at that, that doesn't mean that growing as fast as we can is the fastest, most efficient way of getting there. There are so many institutions that already have infrastructure, already have an on-the-ground footprint. And so we'll continue to grow, but we are very focused on building a collaboration with other institutions that share our conviction in ending the teacher shortage and collaborating rather than competing. Mm, great spirit. The, uh, the tension between quality and scale, yeah, um, you, know, you hear that quite a bit, especially within the education space. On the other hand, the growth as quickly as you can, while it may not necessarily be the thing that you're grabbing onto for the sake of it, but indeed, if you see value in what you're doing, I think there is value in what you're doing. Then obviously, you want to get to as many people as you can, or at least cover as much as you can geographically, because it seems to me that once you get there, many people are going to be able to avail themselves of what you have to offer. It is absolutely the tension. And, and the growth limits that we've set is, um, you know, hearkening back to everyone's high school call, uh, high school math days. Um, the, the numbers that we look at is a Fibonacci sequence. And so for those of you who are a little rustier in that, it's basically a number in a sequence is the sum of the two numbers before it. So if I have one and two as the first numbers in my sequence, the next number would be three, two plus three would then be five, three plus five would then 
78 and so on and so forth. There is a wisdom in my mind to these numbers of these tend to be the types of growth cycles that we see as the maximum upper bound of growth in nature in sustainable ecosystems. And I think there's a wisdom to that of an organization if it starts to grow much faster than that, organizations and organisms are not a whole lot different from one another. And if you start to grow much faster than that, the systems start to break down. You start to lose track of culture. You start to lose track of key priorities. Things start to get bumpy. And so uh, where we've landed on this tension is never growing faster than the sum of the two years prior, which has been very hard. It has meant saying no to entering new states. It has meant saying no to entering places where the funding is there, where the community is there, where the appetite and the demand is there. Um, but I know that right now, part of what makes REACH special is that our districts are not just saying, hey, I, I have a body in this classroom. It's that I have someone who on their first day as a full-time teacher, because they've had four years of incredible high quality instruction from people themselves who are high quality educators, because they've gotten amazing support in the classroom on the ground, they look on their first day a lot more like a fourth year or fifth year teacher. They're going to be here for the next 20 or 30 years. They're not going to burn out. That is, you know, we know that that is our special sauce and we are very careful to protect that. So while you have a sense of urgency, perhaps we could say it's more of a considered sense of urgency growing while being mindful of the, of the pitfalls uh, and drawbacks. Remind me a little bit about the scale and the geographic footprint of, 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 of REACH. Absolutely. So we're currently in four states, California, and then Alabama, Arkansas, and Louisiana. I'll say very quickly before I go any further, I think that's another proof point of how powerful apprenticeship degrees are. If anyone is, has even the slightest bit of familiarity with United States politics, it's that California and Arkansas are about as far apart from each other, both geographically and politically, as you could possibly get. And the fact that we're seeing equal demand and appetite in both of these areas is a sign that, again, not that REACH is special, but that apprenticeship degrees are one of the few things in this country that seem to strike resonance with both ends of the political spectrum. So we're in those four states. Um, a few years ago, our first bachelor's degree class had about 85 students in it uh, in 2020. We are now uh, at about 1,500 students uh, in the program across those four regions, uh, across our undergraduate and graduate programming. Wow. Not, not easy to do, to be able to cater uh, effectively in such different uh, contexts. Yes. Uh, you, give, you gave us a little bit of a glimpse. You mentioned you were doing your, your PhD research and so forth. Um, let's delve a little bit more. What's your, your professional trajectory, your career, your narrative? Give us, give us a little bit of a flavor for what that looks like. Absolutely. I think uh, if there's any way to describe myself, it would be educator by accident. And so I, um, you know, I grew up in a small rural farm town. My parents lost everything in the Mississippi River floods when I was going into preschool. And so I split my time, you know, moving around to whatever community my dad would go to looking for work. He did not have a college degree. And so it was, he usually had to work really hard and it tended to be transitory work to go find uh, a place to, to have a job that could support a family with three young kids. And so my home base as a kid was always my grandparents' farm in this small town of about 300 people. And that moving back and forth between those two worlds constantly um, raised this awareness for me in the difference between rural and urban and, and actually the ways in which they were very similar in a lot of the challenges they faced, but how different it was in terms of 
what we were talking about when we were talking about the need for education reform. So I was aware of that and I it was on my mind and it was acutely bothersome to me. However, having seen how hard my dad had to work without a college degree and how hard life was for my family trying to make ends meet, uh, I had the plan that I think a lot of 18 year olds have, which was go to college, step one, step two, become a millionaire, step three, retire, right? That was that was my very thoughtful plan as an 18-year-old. So I was actually an economics um, major focused on finance and business all the way through college. And a few days, and in fact, I had this one, two, three sequence where on September 11th, before my senior year of college started, uh, I was accepted into business school. Great. This is going to be what I go do. I'm going to go spend two years in finance. Then I'll go to business school. And, you know, I'm on my step one, almost done. Step two underway. Um, on September 12th, I found a tumor that was sort of pressed up against my rib cage. And on September 13th, I started my, I flew back to Illinois to start my final year of college. And I had this moment as a 22 year old for the first time ever, I had to reconcile the fact that, um, you know, everything turned out to be fine, but I had this reckoning of, I might not be here forever. Right. And that I, I might actually be immortal, which is not something that occurs to, to 18 year olds and to 22 year olds. And I realized that I had spent a lot of my free time working on these education questions, particularly around rural education, because I liked it. And everything else I was doing is because I was supposed to do it because I wanted to go make money. And so I was fortunate enough to win a scholarship that then paid for me to go explore, you know, originally the academic side of things. I thought, well, maybe I'll be an educational economist. That's what my doctoral research was focused on. Um, hated it. And uh, finished the degree, but realized I was not meant to be an academic. I was definitely meant to be more of a practitioner and entrepreneur. And so after that, I became a classroom teacher. Um, became a high school principal, and then after that, eventually launched what is now Reach University. What a journey! What a journey! It has been. It has been a journey. I've got the wrinkles to show for it, but it has been a journey. <laughs> what about uh, words of wisdom for for folks who are listening to this? Uh, whether that's in the let's say whether that's in the U.S., perhaps in a state where you're not active, or perhaps elsewhere where what you're talking about resonates. What um, what would you say? You know, I, I never have any wisdom of my own. I just recycle others. And so it would be another quote. Um, and it's a proverb that says, again, something to the effect, I might be butchering it, but, of you know, the best time to plant a shade tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant it is right now. And big things take time. And I think the biggest challenge is that as a result, they have to start in such small, humble beginnings that it almost feels irrelevant or nonsensical what you're working on. I know that 15 years ago, the idea that we would actually have our own accredited university, that we would be able to, to do the things we're doing did not seem like it was within the realm of possibility, but um, you know, good things take time. And if you just keep pushing the, it's the time horizon that tends to get the big results more than anything else. And so starting early and not being intimidated by the humility of what the start will look like is is the best advice that I have seen out there. Mm. And on that time horizon, if we're if you're back on the show in say five years time, what would what would that success look like? You know, in five years time, I will be back here with you, and we'll be talking about. Do you remember how teacher shortages used to be a thing in the United States? Isn't that crazy that there were actually classrooms that kids would walk into, millions of kids would walk into, and there was no teacher there? How crazy is that, that that used to happen? And thank God that it doesn't anymore. That That's the hope. That's the hope, indeed. 
website address? Any specific uh, point where people should go to? Reach.edu. Excellent. Reach.edu. Mallory, thank you so very much for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. I have to tell you, thoroughly enjoyed uh, speaking with you. I know we have quite a few uh, acquaintances or friends in common, so a shout-out actually to Afam Onyema and Ari Simon, uh, who, who sit on your board and who are friends of mine and who I hold in high esteem and who you're lucky to have on your governance. So it's, it's great. And I look forward to uh, hopefully meeting you in person when you're next uh, in the UK. We are very lucky indeed. And I look forward to that. Thank you again, Alberto. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Mallory Palish. Chancellor of Reach University. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable folks in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thanks so much, and I'll catch you on Monday.